sort of monkey's paw kind of supernatural fables that are as much in the realm of black magic or, or like I say, superstition as they are in your typical slasher monster creature fair. We're opening things up a little bit for this particular episode of Horror. As usual, you can expect spoilers for the six films that we review, as well as some coarse language. I do want to warn you, we did this interview over Skype, and uh, there's a couple of points where the audio is not super awesome, mainly that happens in the Dark Tower review. I have done what I can to course correct it, but I am aware that the audio is not as awesome as I usually like to have it be, but I do think it's completely listenable, and you know, it's a free podcast, you guys. I do my best. I'm going to take the brunt of the technical difficulties on my own side, although you'll hear Eric trying to blame himself. Uh, I've been having bad luck with these long-distance interviews for some reason the last couple of months. I apologize for that, but beyond that, this is your host and random Canadian saying thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Please send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca, and I am Larry Parsons, and I'm humble and grateful that you are listening. Let's get on with some horror fantasy. Eric Jurgens, welcome back to Rank and Review. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. And you're frozen. Uh, yes, I, uh, <laughs> I cleared my docket as soon as I lost the Rank and Review Championship. Uh, what was it, two episodes after I got it? <laughs> yeah, there's been a weird uh, thing going on where all of a sudden the prize has been passed around quite a bit, so... Yeah, I guess, uh, what's his face? I, has his, I have his number. <laughs> Lee Beckman is the Lee current. Lee Beckman. 
He's the current Black champion. Man, I'm coming for you. <laughs> so do I'm you... the underdog. I, I know I don't track as like maybe a rank and review fan favorite or regular, but I, I know Lee Beckman, and I'm 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 after his goose. <laughs> do you feel confident with this episode? Do you think you got a good shot? No, I think I have some weird controversial opinions in this episode, and it wouldn't be me if I wasn't true to me to my list rather than trying to win. That's funny that you say that, because I kind of have a similar feeling. I feel like some of my opinions might be a little bit controversial this episode to some people. Maybe we're going to just accidentally land into the same slot. <laughs> it's going to be perfect, Eric. <laughs> or, or, more than likely, we'll do the frustrating thing of being like, more or less on the same page, but just having things slightly off. I think it was, uh, what was it, historic horror, where our lists were almost completely different, but the order was generally the same. It was just like, ah, I think this one was slightly higher than that one, and so on. And so, like, it, it was like one off in each section, if you kind of consider it as, if you consider it as three pairs, right. those pairs were the same pairs. Well, I have noticed that it tends to be uh, lists where I am dispassionate, where, like, the rank almost never matches. <laughs> we didn't go match when we did the musical episodes, but we both had strong opinions, and it seems like we have better chance of, of, of uh, meeting that way. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I do have some fairly strong opinions of a few of these movies. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try not to lose my temper. I don't think there's a Moulin Rouge in this list, but... Uh... <laughs> uh, I don't want to give anything away, but I might have found my Moulin Rouge. I thought Moulin Rouge had a handful of redeeming qualities. Right. There's at least one movie, but a handful, too, that, uh, man, I'm, I'm actually going to say this. I think this might have been my least favorite group of movies in a ranking review. Okay. Uh, it's called horror fantasy. Um, in a way, is that a, would you call that a misnomer that like horror just generally is fantasy, <laughs> or did you get what I was going for with the theme? No, I understand because it's horror with a mystical tinge. And again, you might be like, oh yeah, horror, horror, demons, monsters, all that. But no, there's like, like I wouldn't call a Friday the Thirteenth a horror fantasy, or or even it. Something like it isn't exactly the same kind of horror fantasy. The same way these ones were where the the horror came from let's say a magical element as much as a monstrosity yeah uh exploration of other worlds or uh the afterlife or yeah. fate or just sort of uh hard to hard to put your hands to sort of plot elements but instead of Usually, instead of going for that Spielbergian sense of wonder, the, in these cases, they're being exploited for, for scares. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's what I was going for. Um, and I think that we sort of hit a lot of different approaches. We've kind of got the, in a way, uh, bottle episode movies with a show like um, uh, Altitude, where most of it takes place with a bunch of kids in an airplane. Or we've got the ever-controversial found footage with the Frankenstein theory. Um, there, there's very different approaches being taken, from like wide-ranging fantasy action in The Dark Tower to two people drawing with chalk on the floor in a dark song. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a robot, where you can't define a robot, but you know it when you see it. You know it when you uh, see I it. I think all of these are horror fantasy, and I think you couldn't point to any two and be like, ah, these two belong in a group together, except that they're all horror fantasy. Right, right. 
Well, um, I don't know what else I want to say. I guess I'm anxious to get into it. So is there anything you want to say by way of introduction before we get in? Uh, no, I'm excited to talk about these movies and for some of them to put me very far in the rearview mirror and never think about them again. <laughs> okay. Uh, these six horror fantasies that we're going to talk about in this order. The Dark Tower... Uh, Stephen King adaptation, we're going to talk about Altitude, about a bunch of kids in a plane and weird shit starts happening, uh, What Dreams May Come, an adaptation of a Richard Matheson novel, A Dark Song, a really popular indie horror film from a couple of years ago, Before I Wake from Mike Flanagan, who's done uh, some great work on Netflix recently with The Haunting of Hill House and uh, Gerald's Game, and uh, the found footage movie that I want to talk about, The Frankenstein Theory which takes the unlikely uh, premise that Frankenstein is based on a real story, and he's still out there. Thanks for being here, Eric. You clawing your way out of the darkness? Did you tell the kid whoever walks with you dies by my hand? I will kill him for both of us. I do not aim at my hand. His hand has forgotten the face of his father. I aim with my eye. I cannot shoot with my hand. I shoot with my mind. Jake! I do not kill with my gun. I think it's always a tricky thing when you're watching a movie that's based on something that you love. And uh, I'm a fan of Stephen King. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that. And I am specifically a great big fan of the Dark Tower universe, which not only encompasses these seven novels, but also a lot of the work in Stephen King's <laughs> oeuvre to the left and right. The Stand is technically in the Dark Tower universe. You know, Salem's Lot is technically in the Dark Tower universe. A lot of books actually fold into it. You don't have to know that to enjoy reading those books, but there it is. So, I kind of went in skeptical, Eric, because this is a movie that's based off of at least seven novels, and it's 102 minutes long and contains almost none of the main characters of this series. So I guess my opening salvo, not to tip my hand too obviously, but how can this be anything but a catastrophe? Um, I approached it, I still don't know where you're going to land, but I approached it from the opposite end where I have, I mean, I am a fan of Stephen King, but I've never read anything Dark Tower related. I know people are very passionate about it. I do know that the general public kind of soured to this movie when it first came out because it, they saw it as not doing justice to their beloved universe. Um, but I never carried that weight with me. When I came in, I saw that it was only uh, an hour and a half, and I was kind of like, oh, good, I'll get to bed <laughs> at a reasonable time tonight. Um, but I, I personally believe when you are adapting something, you owe nothing to the source material. It is your job to do the best version of whatever medium you are working with. Um, a lot of times you can turn something that is uh, garbage into gold this way. I would uh, hold up uh, 
something that's in the reverse. If you do not like the prequel Star Wars movies, I encourage you heavily, read the prequel books. The prequel novelizations usually have uh, enough depth in them and enough um, behind-the-scenes explanation that they kind of work around maybe some of the things that didn't work as a movie. And inversely, if you're taking something that's seven novels and you're making it into one movie, I don't think that's an impossible task. I do think you need to... Uh, get creative and draw lines some places. I watching this movie. I think maybe they took that lesson a little too hard, because even without the conceit of this is based off of a lot of stuff and we need to cut things down. Even if you look past that, I think this movie to edit it down. It feels empty, and I don't know how it got that way. Well, uh, again, I'm biased, but I think it's terrible. I really do think it's terrible. Like, uh, I like Idris Elba. I know there was a lot of blowback about his casting because the gunslinger is supposed to basically be Clint Eastwood from, like, the spaghetti western eras, essentially, right? And I'm sorry. I think sorry, he hit that note. I yeah. know that he's not a white old guy, but whatever. Yeah, but I, I think that he's badass and he's pretty convincing with his gun work and uh, a believable action hero. Um, the problem is, like... <laughs> the the series of novels spans like interdimensional exploration right um a lot of the stuff that the movie takes for granted are great revelations for people who like have slowly been reading the novels throughout the course of their lives so it it, it doesn't take seriously or i guess i would say it takes for granted a lot of the big reveals of the book and uh it doesn't keep the heart of it I mean, I'll, I'll talk about, we haven't really talked about the plot at all, I've talked around it, but I, I promise you, Eric, if you read the Dark Tower books, it does not end with the fucking Jedi fight. Okay? Oh, that's too bad. This movie ends with the Jedi fight, alright? Uh, this movie thinks that the Dark Tower is about Roland the Gunslinger facing off against the Man in Black, played by Matthew McConaughey which is a complete misread of the series. The movie or the movie should be about Roland's journey to the Dark Tower. And that is such a huge, unforgivable, just plot-driven miss that I don't think anybody who even halfway liked the series could really get behind the, the movie. Basically, the movie revolves around a psychic child, which is very familiar in Stephen King universe. He likes his psychic children. Um, One of my notes is this kid has The Shining. And absolutely he has The Shining, right? Um, but children are being collected by these uh, uh, creatures who come from other dimensions, and they're using them to break the fabric of existence. They're channeling their psychic en energies to destroy the Dark Tower. The Dark Tower holds all of the layers of existence together. If, the, if all of the universe is a record, the Dark Tower is the spindle that the record is spinning on, Okay. And these evil powers want to destroy it because reasons. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I think I think you just gave more reasons than the film did. Exactly though, but what it does do is it like it it ruins major cool revelations throughout the book. The fact that a lot of human beings are not actually human beings; they're these animal-faced creatures wearing masks. Um, you could read the entirety of Hearts in Atlantis, for instance, and not know that the people that are searching for Ted are not actually people. It doesn't hurt your enjoyment of the story to not know that they're not some government agency, but they're a really sinister, monstrous, evil, dark thing, right? Uh, but 
that's how Stephen King works. If you know what's going on, you know what's going on. If not, you'll still enjoy the story. Um, what's really infuriating is that you can tell somebody involved in this set had read the Dark Tower books because there's shit all over the place in the background talking about the Crimson King and references to characters from uh, both this novel and other Stephen King novels. Like, somebody had done their homework, but it's an impossible task. To me, what it feels like is if someone had said, let's take the complete series of Game of Thrones. I know it hasn't all aired yet. I'm aware of this, but pretend it had and said, okay, that's an amazing show. Cut it down to 103 minutes. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. So let me say this. You can't do that and keep what's quintessential about Game of Thrones. I think you could have an hour-long Game of Thrones movie that was good in its own right. For anyone listening here, if you're worried like, oh, um, I might not like this movie because it does a disservice to the books, I would say... Don't avoid Dark Tower for that reason. You should avoid it because it's a shitty movie. <laughs> like, as someone who doesn't care, like like you said, there's a bunch of stuff that is revealed wrong, and I didn't know any of that because I had no idea that it was a big revelation. Right. As a movie, as a standalone piece, it just fails in its own right because the editing is so incredibly choppy. It legitimately feels like they cut around scenes. Like they had a movie that was three hours long, and then someone made a bet of like, oh, I bet you couldn't cut this down to half the length mm-hmm. and they were like yeah it functions but we did it. It, it it the movie legitimately should have been an hour longer and not an hour longer to try and encapsulate the world some room to breathe um right off the bat the there the story begins and i would say stays a little too long in what we would consider the real world before it transitions to the Gunslinger's world. And I was so uninterested in everything that happened in the real world. The whole movie, if you're going to have something that's chopped down, if you're going to play to your strengths, the whole movie should have been focused in what I have written down here as fantasy land. I don't know what that realm is called, but the, <laughs> the Gunslinger's uh, dimension should have just been the focal point of the movie because it was the most interesting thing that this movie presented, which might not have been the most interesting thing that was in the books, but for what I had in front of me on my feet when I played The Dark Tower, that was the part that was even semi-engaging. But instead they cut around that so quickly and insisted on having half of it happen in our universe. Right. Well, uh, and again, I I could just spend the whole review beating on it for what it didn't have in the books, and I'm going to stop that. But here's something else I'm going to say. Apparently... McConaughey was offered whichever part he wanted, basically. He could be the gunslinger or he could be the man in black. I think both of those roles would be juicy if they'd actually, you know, honestly adapted them. But he chose consciously that he wanted to be the the bad guy in this one. And uh, I've been here to... uh, I've, I've sort of been on board for the redemptive story that was Matthew McConaughey. Like, he had a strong debut and then he kind of did shit for a long time and then all of a sudden there was the true detective and then the oscar win and like interstellar and some really interesting choices i think he's dog shit in this movie i think he actively sucks in this movie and that's amazing to me (laughs) like this this character is packed with so much history and so much evil and he is got the ego that he sees a way to end the world and he's going to do it just because it would seem like there's a lot to play with there and McConaughey looks bored to me. 
He legitimately, I have in my notes, he legitimately came across as someone who was not Matthew McConaughey doing their best the Matthew McConaughey impression and probably nailing it more than someone who is not Matthew McConaughey uh, should nail it, but definitely not coming across in a genuine way. And on top of that, all of his, like, I would legitimately say 100% of his lines sound ADR'd in a way that none of the rest of the dialogue does. Yeah. Like, all of it sounds flat, and, like, it doesn't... It isn't coming from the same space as the other characters. It all sounds so weird. It's a really rough one-two punch of having an interested actor and then still, not like, really stifled dialogue. It's just uninspiring. Yeah. And, like I said, the idea that this leads up to the two of them having a face-to-face battle and the, basically a psychic fight that they're having between each other, it really did remind me of Star Wars Jedi. Like, that is not just not what happens in the series. It's an act of betrayal of it. And maybe if it was executed well enough, I could say, well, it's certainly not for Dark Tower fans, but if you want to see a badass psychic wizard fight or whatever they were trying to do, but it's not even that. It's not even that. It's so weird. I would say that this movie does, like, the most positive thing I can probably say about it, other than that, like, again, I found the Gunslinger's Road to be an interesting place. Um, the Gunslinger himself, like, introduced new... Ideas like in the same way that John Wick's a different type of action. This gunslinger is a different type of badass. The way that he'll like perfectly reload his gun, like that has some kinetic energy, like that kinetic momentum to it. That feels good. It, it feels neat when he does uh, his um, shooting. It feels good, but it's just it's wasted. It's it's just so wasted. At the very end of the movie, spoilers and swear and all that. Um, the he ends up tricking the dark not Jedi by shooting him. The Matthew McConaughey character is able to flawlessly deflect um, or catch his bullets. He shoots at him, and then he... It's so weirdly shot. It's a neat idea, but it's so weirdly shot. He fires, and then the, the camera goes to a slow-mo shot of the bullet. Then it goes to a real-time shot of him turning, aiming at, like, a brick wall, firing again, and then... Somehow that bullet he shot a good a good three seconds out of the first bullet, hits the wall, ricochets against the first bullet, which hasn't hit its target yet, and then that puts that offsets its course just enough to hit Matthew McConaughey in a spot that he wasn't expecting. The concept is interesting. If he had two guns, say, and he did that, that would have been believable. But I watched in real time the amount of time it happened. Like it's just so weirdly edited that it's like, how did you guys not figure this out? Right. Um, and uh, like the gunslinger is described as being like supernaturally fast and skilled at fighting, um, and it's something that that I think would be hard to uh, bring to the the screen, especially the way it's 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 described. His hands are like blurs, as not just as he draws his gun, but as how quickly he can reload his gun. Yeah. And uh, and I think the movie's honestly trying to put that across. I just think it's a tall order. I don't know if they a hundred percent got it. Like it was more in the earlier. Well, he- earlier fights it before we see uh, the dark man like when he fights the, the interdimensional creatures uh, uh, then I think it's a little bit better executed in that sequence than in the last one Jake Chambers is the main character of I guess ar- arguably the main character in the movie he's sort of the kid who discovers the world and who we find the world with 
he has to defeat this freaky gatekeeper thing, which I thought was pretty reasonably well realized. Uh, like the way the demon's face sort of forces its way out of the wall of the building to chase this boy. I thought like that they did reasonable justice visually to some of the concepts, but again, uh, it's a much it's a much bigger, richer world than than this movie's allowing. I, I think I said earlier it would be like condensing the entire series of Game of Thrones into a hundred minutes. You would just you you lose so much that it's whatever's there doesn't even make sense. There's so much history to the gunslinger character. There, he, he forms an entire group around him, uh, fellow warriors, to help him quest for the Dark Tower. None of them are even given mention in this movie. So, I mean, having taken it as we get, I think what happens here is just basically a muddled, confusing sci-fi fantasy horror movie that isn't that interesting and it's so frustrating because the source material is so interesting so my war is it is like is the movie really as terrible as i think it is or is it as terrible as i think it is like is it just because i love the books too much uh hearing you kind of back me up in this helps a little bit I, I, I will continue to work defense for Idris Elba. I always like him as an actor. I think Matthew McConaughey was sleepwalking through this. This was just a free trip to Africa for him, it sounds like. And I wish that they'd hired someone who cared about it. But that said, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. The script wasn't really there for them either. And uh, I don't know. It, it's just such an anticlimactic disappointment to me that I cannot endorse it to anyone. Not Stephen King fans, not horror fantasy fans. That's sadly, yeah, that's sadly where I washed up on it, and that's so disappointing. Are we supposed to level off or something? The elevator's not responding for some reason. Twenty thousand feet? That's impossible. Mayday! 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 I think I have a problem here. What the hell? Sarah, we need to go back. Let's turn around now. Hey, what the hell is going on? You're the pilot. Get us out of it. Something's jumped. You're not going out there. Be sitting in here waiting to die. Oh, what the? I saw something. What is it? What's going on? Am I the only one that's gone completely insane? It's uh, oxygen deprivation. What if we're just part of some big experiment, you know, like something to see how people react to stress? Both of you, stop it! This happened before and it's happening again. Altitude is a 2010 horror fantasy about five teenagers who decide to fly to a concert. Um, four of them seem to know each other quite well, but they're sort of an odd one out. And I guess as the story progresses, he becomes a really odd one out. Um, I guess where I would start with Altitude is with the good things I will say about it. I think conceptually in a in an in, in an idea base you could cut a really good trailer imagery out of this like there's something about you know atmospheric things people seeing strange things in the sky and <clears throat> moving it above just strange lights or angels in the clouds to some sort of real menacing lovecraftian creature whatever could be living up there or how would that could possibly be 
I think like that's really interesting, and I like the idea of setting the entire movie almost with these five people locked in a box. It, 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 it makes it feel claustrophobic, and you kind of feel as helpless as the characters would, would feel. I think where the movie stumbles a bit for me is that I a it's one of these unsolvable mysteries. I don't think it's one of those things there. If you were paying attention, it would all you know make perfect sense. Um, and I think once the revelations come through, the characters that knew what was going on, or the character that did know what was going on, his behavior becomes so callous as to make him in kind of the villain of the piece. <laughs> So um, I know I've sort of talked around the plot, but uh, that was just me opening the door on, on Altitude. But what were your thoughts on it? I can already tell the realists are not going to be the same. Okay. Uh, you've been so so terrible to this movie. <laughs> 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 You're like, oh, the concept is cool and whatnot. And what the saying, the road to whatever is paid for good intentions. I hate almost everything about this movie. Really? Um, To start off with... Uh, there are movies with a low budget, and then there's low budget movies, and this is decidedly the latter. Right. This is, this is uh, a very, it's a cheap movie. This isn't a expensive movie. This is a cheap movie. It feels weird to watch, but like, hey, you're you do the best with the tools that are given. Um, and as you said, like there is, I think there's a thing to be said of like, could you make an interesting thing of five people in a plane? And I think the answer to that is definitely yes, if I gave a fuck about any of the five people in the plane. Um, there's a guy who I have in my notes as young Jake Paul. Uh, <laughs> there's just a Sal. frat house, blonde, shortcut, like yeah. just the, the uh, utter piece of shit. And he was in the movie for way too long. I have three, four notes. I have four notes about him before the first 10 minutes of the movie and how much I hate him. Yeah. Um, well, I, <clears throat> that's where I was going. I mean, I like the setup. I like the idea of it. And I'm not going to wag my finger at a movie that's, that's low budget. I mean, I made a micro budget movie. I get, uh, there's a lot of obstacles and I think it was pretty ambitious considering the story they were trying to tell to do it on this budget, but it's the character work and the screenplay that lets us down again we'll often run into these characters who are just there to raise the stakes and make things worse, uh, that are in no way helpful, the Cooper character, as it were. But I find that those characters only work with a really good actor and a solid script behind them. And I think the kid's doing the best he can. He, he, that same actor was in It uh, It Follows, I believe, and he did much better there, I think. But he yes, is not it credible. Follows a masterpiece. He, he's not credible here like you don't believe what the choices that he's making you don't believe the things that he's saying even before the stakes are ratcheted up he's such a piece of shit that i don't buy it and again same thing with the this young pilot yeah she has her pilot's license but she's doing everything wrong right she left the equipment loose in the back which causes their initial problem with not being able to descend the plane gets stuck in continual ascension and uh not making a, a plan which is like square one from a pilot you tell people where you what you're flying and where you're going so people know you know and she did none of those things so basically callously put herself and her friends in needless levels of danger same thing and i know i'm i'm jumping right to spoilers but the kid whose fears have this bad habit of manifesting themselves in reality and whose family died in a plane crash 
There's no way he could have possibly done the math that something might happen when he goes on this tiny airplane. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It's not credible. The actors are trying to make it credible, and the budget, even though it's restrained, I think is, is dealing with the material as best it can within the restraints of its budget. But the script, the script lets us down. The, yeah, the protagonist, I guess, she takes this plane behind her dad's back like she's sneaking away with the car. Exactly. <laughs> They're like, partway through the movie, they're like, hey, people were over we're gone, right? And she was kind of like, oops, no, <laughs> I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it's not, that's not how you do planes. And inversely, uh, a good half of this movie is just everyone who is not the pilot telling the pilot what to do. Mm. And it was insufferable <laughs> to me. There was a whole lot of backseat pilots. Absolutely. <laughs> like, Liking a character. They fly into a cloud and everyone freaks out and starts like yelling at the person who is controlling their lives and possibly the lives of others, depending on where they are, <laughs> um, telling her what to do, how to do it. Because, like, oh, I'm all freaked out. She should have made sure that everyone was cool with flying before <laughs> flying. Um, but there is something to that that I will say. I mean, maybe it's just. I've I've said before, I think everybody's at least a little bit afraid of flying, just a little bit. Some people are much more dramatically frightened of flying, but even though statistically they'll say it's the safest possible way to travel. When I traveled to Africa for uh, Mr. Lee Beckman's wedding, I had to get on three different planes, and they each one got a little smaller <laughs> and a little rickier <laughs> as they went along. And uh, by the last one, like w when we were, you know, getting up to our, our traveling, uh, uh, sorry, getting up to our proper height and whatever while we were ascending into the sky. Cruising altitude. Cruising altitude, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. When we're getting to cruising altitude, the wings seem to literally be flapping and making this high-pitched squeaky, squeaky, squeaky sound. And I was really looking to the left and right at all these other doe-eyed passengers saying, is everybody really okay with this? Like, <laughs> it was the closest I came to sort of like yelling out loud, is, is, is this right? Is this what it's supposed to be like? And I, I can feel that anxiety. The difference is I didn't go into the cockpit and start screaming at the pilot that he was an idiot <laughs> or what was going on. <laughs> but um, I do think that I understand that fear and that fear being a trigger for panic. And again, if it was better executed from the screenplay, I think the, I don't think the actors are all horrible here. I just think they dealt again a bad a bad hand. I. At the end of the day, I don't care if the actors are horrible or not because the characters are. Right. And there's speaking of the characters, so yeah, like we kind of you went over this already, but the gist of the movie is that there is this one guy, the fish out of water, or not fish out of water, but the black sheep amongst the group, um, the protagonist's boyfriend. He has, it turns out, the ability to turn to manifest. And it's not the only time we're going to deal with this, but he's able to manifest his deep fears and deep uh, feelings into reality. And it turns out that he's the one causing all of the horror and all that. Um, I know that that's just as ineffectively executed as any other part of this movie. But what is put in front of us uh, for a majority of the film is his relationship with the protagonist, which is God awful. Right. She should not have brought him on this trip. She has already broken up with him in her head, 
that she invited him along. He does not understand that they're breaking up. She doesn't adequately explain that they're breaking up. He, so like, it's, could you imagine if it's like, oh yeah, we're going to Mexico for the weekend, you and your significant other. And then like during that trip, she was like, oh yeah, this is, we're already done. But you find out as the trip has started before it's too late to back out. And then for the rest of the movie, she treats him like the asshole for not figuring it out until it does flip and he becomes the asshole where he doesn't, he, he won't let it go. Like, it's just, I don't understand how both of the people can be so wrong in this situation. And the movie has to bend over backwards. And I think what they're trying to do is like, give them maybe some sort of character redemption by this quote twist ending. Unfortunately, by that point, I didn't like them enough that I didn't care that they died, thus didn't care that their deaths undid this childhood tragedy. Somehow through getting out of this time rift or whatever that he's created, uh, it turns out it's their plane that causes the accident that claims his parents. And uh, when they come back into town this time she's able to avoid hitting the other plane but their plane crashes but the younger version of themselves you know get away from that other catastrophe and so perhaps none of this will end up playing out it's just this weird time loop thing and you know again i would be satisfied if i cared about the characters but by that point i didn't so it just sort of seemed like another thing that the movie was trying to do again I don't know how we were supposed to predict that this kid had psychic powers to manifest his fears. And then, you know, he the comic book, of course, had the tentacle monsters and everything like that. And it seemed like he was realizing it as it was happening. But when he talks to her about it, it, he talks to her as if it's a thing that's been going on for a long time. And he did have anxiety about going on the plane. And he did have this huge amount of baggage with her. So he could and should have expected something to go wrong and sure enough something did go wrong and it cost everybody their lives so why do i care i don't <laughs> right so it puts us in a sticky situation like again i, I i'm not going to be as unkind about the budget and i think like i said i'm okay with the cast but i uh i just it doesn't close the deal for me at all and i wish i want to yeah I- I want to defend what I said because, like, my my issue is not that this movie didn't have a lot of money. The, my issue is that it doesn't feel like they maybe necessarily put their money to good use. I don't know if that's a good way to do it. If anyone watches this movie, they'll know what I mean right away where, like, the... I have not seen Book of Trespasses. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. So far, it's only been uh, premiering in Saskatoon. Only Saskatchewan people have circuit, been. I'll guarantee see it. Huh. I so I I'm just speaking out of my expectations for you. Mm-hmm. But I assume that you make the absolute most out of whatever scenery and lighting and setup you had access to. And this movie doesn't feel like that. It, there are some shots in this. They literally feel like they just set up a camera at an airport and there's like no there's no depth to it the image quality feels bad the writing feels cheap the cgi feels cheap but if everything else was clever i would forgive it one of my favorite films uh no surprise it's a christopher nolan film <laughs> sorry everybody um following was made on a two thousand dollar budget and that movie is completely fantastic and completely intelligent and i promise you cost less than this movie yeah it's not about the amount of budget 
but like I said, it's the fact that it feels decidedly cheap. Yeah. N- not not low budget, but cheap. Like a dollar store trinket that you know is going to break. I think the frustrating thing to me is that the concept's there and the cast is enough there to me that you can sort of see the good movie haunting this bad movie. You can see around the corners how this might have worked if it was just slightly better handled. <laughs> and uh, in a way, I would have almost enjoyed it if it was full-on cat- catastrophe, you know, if the if the performances were hammy and completely inappropriate and the, the uh, special effects were hilariously inadequate, then I might have just been able to laugh at it. Instead, I was just like, oh no, oh no, oh no. If it, if it was Indie Cabin in the Woods, right. then you'd have some point of endearment to it. It kind of reminds me tangentially about a game that I loved growing up. Spoilers for an old uh, Game Boy game. Uh, It's called Lufia. Um, And the premise is that this young adventurer and this fortune teller uh, team up and you acquire other teammates as you go along. But the key thing is that the fortune teller, everything that she predicts she has vague visions, but they always come true. And they kind of explore this as the game goes on, and eventually it's revealed that it turns out she is an ultimate... She's actually, like, reincarnated as a human, an ultimate evil, and she wasn't having predictions. She was creating the predictions into reality through her powers. And this movie almost touches on a similar thing in that vein, and it's not even the only movie on this list that does that. Not at all. But it just didn't, just didn't do it well. Right. I, that's all I got to say about Altitude, man. I, I rung out. I could continue to kick at it, but I don't hate no, it enough to do that, you know? <laughs> no, I hate it. I feel like it wasted my time. <laughs> Sorry, dude. If heaven is a place where you know only joy... Oh! Boy, I screwed up. I'm in dog heaven. You're creating an entire world here from your imagination, from anything you want. Where you feel no more fear. I'm gonna drown. You can't. You're already dead. Oh. And anything you can imagine yeah! is real. <laughs> it's your world! Could you let go Annie! of the love you left behind? I need Annie. That'll change in time. Time does not exist here. And wherever it went, it's not going to make me need Annie any less. And how far would you go? You never see her. I'm her soulmate. To get it back, I can find her. <laughs> Your wife, love you, strong. You just kept me there. Robin Williams. It's not about understanding. It's about not giving up. Cuba Gooding Jr. You find her. You can do it. I believe in you. Annabella Shiora. I'm still here, baby. I still exist. What dreams may come. I have gone on in the past about Richard Matheson on the show and that I am a fan of his. When I first watched What Dream May Come, What Dreams May Come, I was not a big Matheson fan. I didn't really know the man. Um, to be honest, when I first saw it in the late 90s, was not a big fan at all. <laughs> I uh, picked it up cheap. <clears throat> 
there's a store not far from my house that sells movies three for eight dollars. And it was, uh, you know, shortly after Robin Williams had passed away, and I thought I should give what dreams may come another pass. A, you know, just uh, feeling nostalgic for Robin Williams, and B, now that I know this is based off of a novel by Richard Matheson, maybe there was more to it. And uh, it's one of those weird occasions where I've revisited a movie, and it's actually improved in my esteem quite a bit. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that there aren't problems with what dreams may come, and I'm not going to sit here and say that it's got a little bit of uh, Disney-esque levels of sugar to it. It's a little bit saccharine here and there, you know, in that way that it's almost perfect that it was Robin Williams cast in it. But I went from actively disliking the movie to actively liking it on this viewing. And I have this feeling like that might be a controversial decision, but it's how I feel. So um, this story of a doctor who is killed in a car accident and gets to explore the afterlife and discover, uh, well, build his own world, first of all, and rediscover his lost children and go on this epic quest to recover his damned wife from the reaches of hell. It's this uh, <laughs> love story sort of expanding deep into the afterlife. And I gotta say, when I first saw it, I found it condescending. And when I saw it the second time, I kind of was charmed by it. Am I crazy? I. It's funny. It feels like we had an exact opposite reaction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't... I'm not passionately against this movie at all. I think it's a good movie. I like I would recommend watching it. I'll even go ahead and say I probably would recommend watching it over some other movies that I might have enjoyed more on this list. When I first watched What Dreams May Come, um, it was years ago, uh, far before Robin Williams had died. Um, I think my parents had watched it and they kind of explained the premise to me and I was like, oh cool, I'll give it a shot. And it executes on the premise entirely uh, entirely well uh so i came away from it enjoying it in fact when i pick this list when i pick lists i try and do it where i have some uh means of familiarity but i'm also a little bit outside of my comfort zone right um and this was one of the uh, this is one of the grounding movies where i saw it on the list i'm like ah what change they come i that's a known quantity to me i'm down for watching that again upon rewatching though it's just a much more flawed movie than I remembered. It, um, the strengths of the movie are, I would say, it's nice to watch Robert Williams do his thing. It's just, it's just pleasant. And I understand that that's obviously tinged with, uh, circumstance, but God damn it, I, I, I like watching the man do his stuff. I also think this movie is artistic with a capital A in a very good way. This is this is a good example of using literal art, um, sometimes literal literal art, and that it's like a, actual paintings. But I also mean like the cinematography, the set design, all that kind of stuff. Well, it's, I will back is, you up. Like mm-hmm. I, I will back you up on that entirely. I think that visually, the movie is stunning. Both its depiction of heaven and hell have some really, I think strong and memorable imagery to it i think that the movie could almost work with the sound off it could be like just projected up on the wall and appreciated on that level and that's not an easy thing to accomplish it's also dealing with a lot of intangibles and uh 
I, I, I don't want to get into a religious debate because uh, it would bog everything down. But You're not going to get into one with me. Okay. Well, I... I don't want to be insensitive to people who believes and like I I like to think I'm very respectful of people with beliefs and there was a time that maybe I was not as respectful as I should have been. In a way I feel like this movie is all about wish fulfillment. It's everything we want and hope the afterlife to be. And I think maybe as an angry young man that meal was it it, it felt false to me. It felt so false that I I kind of rejected it. (laughs) Like on face value, I was just like, yeah, this is a fairy tale people tell themselves so that they can sleep at night and not fear death, right? And that's that's pretty grim, but that's where I was coming from. And when I watched it again, I thought the exact same thing, but without the cynicism. In fact, it, you know, (laughs) if, if if you take comfort from this story, then then this story is 100% a success, you know? And if you appreciate it as a fantasy, I think it's successful. And if you appreciate its visual aesthetic the way I did, I think it all works. I think there's strange moments in the movie. There's this running gag, almost, of uh, characters in the afterlife posing as other people. I'm, I'm not sure why they felt the need that this Cuba Gooding Jr. character, his his guide would disguise the fact that it was his son. You'd think that one of the first things that you would want to see when you found the afterlife was your lost son, you know? And uh, the movie handles it psychologically. They said you'll see your son when you're ready to see your son. But it does seem like he, he he's wearing a mask deliberately, right? Maybe death itself was such a big thing to handle. Maybe he did need a little bit of time before he could start talking to dead people. (laughs) But uh, um, I remember, again, the first time I watched the movie, that kind of bothering me. And watching it this time, it bothering me less. Kind of being charmed by the Japanese stewardess, right? Kind of being charmed by... Max Vincito is such an actor, but uh, he's constantly sort of deliberately poking Robin Williams' characters in a way that he knows will piss Robin Williams' characters off because when they were alive, they were best friends. And Robin Williams doesn't know that that's his former best friend. He's sort of taking advantage of this, uh, this perspective that he has on things, this heightened awareness. And again, that bothered me less, but I can still understand how someone would maybe roll their eyes at it. My issue with those things... So, I guess I have two big problems with this movie. Uh, I have three big problems with this movie. The first one is that at some point, the film What Dreams May Come loses the story for the world building, and it takes too much time explaining the rules and, I guess, trying to make excuses for the way things are. And let me tell you, when you're heaven and hell, it doesn't fucking matter. Whatever, <laughs> like, it might as well be Alice in Wonderland. You don't have to be like, oh, you'll see your kids when you want to see your kids. It'll be like, nah, man, not yet, I guess. I don't know, whatever. And then it's like, and then you can reveal things. It, it, it really stops... There's a lack of forward progression narratively, even though literally the characters are always marching forward in their journey, and it becomes more uh, excusing the world or or, um, explaining the world. My second problem is with the characters disguising themselves. It's not that they are disguised, because that can be whatever, like I said, the rules can be whatever they want. It's that there's a lot of unearned revelations. It's that when... There's like you said. There's this character of 
the guy through the afterlife who was played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Who can I just take it aside? What happened to Cuba Gooding Jr.? Where he started. He, he started making terrible movies. I guess he did this uh, reality docudrama where he played O.J. Simpson. I haven't seen it, but apparently he's really, really good in it. And every now and then you'll see him show up in a solid supporting role. But basically his life has been direct to video dreck, unfortunately. Because I do think he's a good actor. I really And I really liked him in this movie. <laughs> like he was holding a secret. And you could see, sort of see that he wanted to, to say more than he was to, to the Robin Williams character. I mean, I think it was well well done. Well acted for sure. I miss him. I Put him back in more stuff. Give him Matthew and Matthew's tower next time yeah um, he can play the dark yeah yeah for sure um but in any case towards the end of the movie it's revealed that this Cuba Gooding Jr. is actually Robin Williams' son and when he explains why he says oh dad I'm this character uh it, this is it's actually a little bit complicated the best friend that Max von Sydow played was plays in the afterlife was a black man in the real world or in the living world. Yes. Um, the Cuba Gooding Jr. is ostensibly playing this black uh, best friend of Robin Williams in the afterlife, but it's actually, I don't even know if I explained it properly, it's actually his son taking the form of his best this friend. Best friend. Um, and at the very end, he's like, oh, why do you think that I took the form of this best friend of yours? It's because he's the only one you would ever listen to. And let me tell you something. I had no idea that was a fact until that moment that he said it. Right. Why would he reveal... Well, like, there's a whole lot of instances of setting up revelations and revealing them in the same breath. Like, for example, could you imagine if it's like... There's two people at a bus stop, and like just two people at a bus stop and a scene plays out perfectly normally, and then at the end of the bus stop, it's like, oh, and by the way... I'm your long-lost sister. And you're like, what the fuck? I didn't know that this guy had a long-lost sister. It was just two people at a bus stop. And then you add so much weight to these revelations that I, as an audience member, have no idea was supposed to have weight. I'm it trying to remember, me. Eric. There, There is a series of flashbacks where they're sh showing him talking to his son because they're going to send him to this special school because he's not doing well in his studies. He's got some sort of learning disability. And he and his son having this argument out in the rain for some reason. Um, but I, I apologize because I can't remember when that information comes. If that's after we know. I think that's coming as he's realizing it. I think... Yes. Uh, is that right? Yeah, sorry. It's as he's realizing it. And this isn't the only case of it. Almost every revelation has this, where there'll be some flashback or some attached thing. There was, like the, you said, the Japanese stewardess. Uh, at some point early on in the journey, while they're still in heaven, he finds this, uh, this uh, Asian woman, this Asian stewardess, who turns out to be his daughter. And again, when he realizes that it's his daughter, she goes, you know... You once complimented Asian women, and that stuck with me. But again, I didn't know that that was the thing that stuck with the daughter until that very moment. Right. It, it's like I was talking about with altitude. You kind of resent it for being an unsolvable mystery. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I, I was looking at it as an experience for Chris. For Chris, it's a solvable mystery. I guess for us, it's not. And maybe that's why they're making such much of a fuss out of the environments. His idea of heaven is living inside his wife's art. And so the world literally looks like paint strokes all the time. It's hard to sort of describe it, but it, I think it's... It's beautiful. You it's should gorgeous. watch it if only for the 
imagery. Uh, and the the sort of Highlander moment where he falls into the water and then he thinks he's going to drown. And he's like, no, dude, you're dead. He can't drown. <laughs> you're fine. Uh, there's sort of great discovery there. In a way, What Dreams May Come became the movie that I wanted Ghost to be. The Patrick Swayze <laughs> movie. Because I was much more interested in him exploring his life as a ghost in that movie than I was in the romantic and sort of murder mystery angle. This movie really, really pays off on the exploration of the afterlife. It's just how much you can buy into this said afterlife. Because again, if you get into the philosophy of this, it starts to break down pretty hard. Like, if people who commit suicide are damned to hell, then if your son or daughter committed suicide, when you get to heaven, they're not there. Can heaven be heaven if you're denied access to your children? Does God not not allow for redemption? <laughs> you know, like all of these questions start to fall in and then, then you just, you know, it breaks down. So you just sort of have to take it in as this wish fulfillment sort of thing. And uh, like I said, there are moments where it gets a little bit, you know, Disney Sunday afternoon special, sweet, saccharine even. But I, I guess going through the trauma and terror of death, you might need that to sort of <laughs> bring you back. And again, the whole concept of what is he? He's not a physical being anymore. So is he like this matrix projection of himself? If he can travel to any corner in the multiverse by closing his eyes and opening them, why was the journey to hell a very, very physical, real journey, which involved like that creepiest shit ship being swamped by all the lost souls in the ocean they there's so many of them try to climb aboard the ship at once that it actually drowns the whole ship really really nightmarish imagery and stuff like that and really strong again don't think too deeply about it though right which brings me to my third problem with the movie which is a lighter one but i don't think that it ended in a fully satisfactory way it feels like they they got the Disney resolution that they wanted, where eventually he finds his wife in hell and he does redeem her soul. Um, but the, like that wasn't enough. They had to have an even happier ending somehow. So him and his wife decide to reincarnate and fall in love all over again. I absolutely as agree. They reincarnate as. On that just, point, it, by that point, I was kind of ready for the ride to be done. On that point, I absolutely agree. Going to hell and literally rescuing the damned soul of his wife was enough. And, you know, they've got their family back. Everything that they've lost, they've regained, only to completely abandon it again? Like, instantly? Fuck that. Enjoy heaven for a while, at least. Yeah, exactly. Spend a couple decades, even, hanging out with your kids and exploring what this place has Spend to offer. millennia! It's heaven! Do whatever it's... you want! Be like... Hey Siri, set me a reminder for a hundred years from now to get reincarnated. Like, in a way, he's implying it's the journey, not the destination for him. It's not about having his wife in his arms. It's about the journey to get her. And to me, that seems antithetical to the whole quest of the movie, right? You got your yeah. wife. You don't turn around and then just walk away. And even if you know, you'll be back, right? Like... I don't know. I, I agree completely. I didn't buy that. And then the two cute little kids whose toy boats bump into each other and they look up and they instantly fall in love. No, I was like, oh, tisk tisk, too far. Leave them and have them. L let them. Let them have their family back. Let that be enough. 
you know. But uh, have that be a deleted scene on the DVD. And move on. Yeah, this was a this was something we thought about maybe doing, but in the end decided against. That would have been the best of possible worlds. But again, I have to say when I when I put this list together, I was sort of thinking that this was the movie I was going to be making fun of and kind of condescending about. And I like it way, way, way more now than I did before. I will admit, I got a little choked a couple times watching the movie. Maybe it's because I'm a parent now, too. Uh, his his regret with how s- sort of stern he was with his son. Obviously, you don't know. It's the last conversation you're going to have with your kid. But I- if he did, he wouldn't have been as shitty, <laughs> you know? That sort, of, that sort of stuff really did get to me, you know? And I really did want him to win his, his wife back. And I really did feel for the tormented souls whose faces he was stepping on to get to. <laughs> there's so much interesting stuff in the movie that even though yes the ending is absolutely saccharine like my teeth were starting to rot out of my mouth saccharine I still give the movie a pass and uh, not only do I like it more than I did before I, I'll watch it again I've done this three times once it worked twice it didn't I have to hear his voice again This is your last chance to back out. Seal it. You do know what we're taking on. A shifting consciousness. Becoming one with the ceremony. Pure. And may all my transgressions be washed. This is real stuff we're playing with. Real angels, real demons. Make me interesting. How do we know that it started? You'll see it soon enough. May my light be here now. May protecting me. Drink it! Just remember who's paying for this. Do you know the ritual? No. You agreed to do whatever I said. Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Solomon. Sorry, Mr. Solomon. Take off your jeans. Okay, well, a dark song. We go from one obsessed quest to, uh you know, find this man was trying to cross hell to get his wife back. This woman is willing to put herself through any measure of uh, of hell to get vengeance upon these people who have... She lost her son. His, her son were kidnapped and killed by a bunch of teenagers who were trying to do some weird satanic ritual. And it has, of course, destroyed this woman's life. And she is broken and she wants vengeance. And uh, she hires this psychic, um, and they lock themselves into this countryside mansion in Wales and start doing these bizarre rituals to try and make contact with the other side and gain favors. What we have here are two very, very broken people locked together in a mansion playing with powers that are way beyond them. (laughs) It's a very simple, very dark, very moody thriller and um it haunts me (laughs) like it stuck with me this movie and it kind of broadsided me anytime i thought i knew where the movie was going it turns out that i didn't know where the movie was going it also has two of the most contradictory frustrating and fascinating central characters that i've bumped into in a while and that by uh, I, I go through the movie largely hating the male character, the psychic, him just being such an undeniable, un, 
unbelievably frustrating character. And yet, I believe him. And when you look back on it, most of his behavior makes sense. She's not honest with him at any point. They're both using each other. They both come at each other from the exact wrong angle to be playing with these powers. And it's not until they realize it and become sort of unified that they're able to start making shit happen. But by the time they're start starting to be able to make shit happen, you're starting to wonder personally if you want anything <laughs> to happen. For me, I found it to be quite enthralling and at times quite terrifying. But I'm open to hearing another perspective. Uh, you'll have to go to another podcast to hear another perspective. Because that lines <laughs> up very much with my experience with this movie. Um, I have never seen or heard of this movie before this. Nice. I went in not knowing what to expect at all. And in, right from the beginning, I was grabbed. It just did such a good job of without sitting down and spelling it out. Even though there is a scene where the two protagonists sit down at a diner and talk about things, it never actively says, hey, we're going to do a ritual, until you get the point that they are going to do a ritual. It sets things up so smoothly, so slowly, but so surely, that it just struck me. The confidence of this filmmaking struck me. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was fun to sit and watch them go through their process. Um, it also raised the thought to me, because like you said, it, it takes a while before they start seeing results. So yep. These things don't just exist in horror movies. There are surely some sects of the internet that that delve into like, oh, here's how you would do a ritual to speak to the damned, and here's such and such. And you have to expect that some amount of those people really truly believe it. And while I was watching this movie, it, it struck me that this is not a big stretch. The idea, like, it might be a rare thing, but the idea that someone could pose on the internet as, oh, I am an expert uh, on the occults, on rituals, on the demonic, and someone else who is very desperate would reach out to them and say, hey, I'm willing to do whatever it is to talk to my son that I lost, to talk to whoever, to something or other and have this person be ah yes I have the answers for you come to wherever and do everything I say and you will get the results you want that can happen in real life that part of it isn't fantasy at all that that stuff does happen with psychics in real life where Indeed. they'll be like ah your missing daughter is dead in a ditch or she's misses you but she's happy or whatever and they don't know yeah and they usually, I would say, that's how I would almost prefer them to be portrayed as sort of charlatans, people taking advantage of people in need. I think a lot of where the anger comes from, from the psychic character, is that he is legit, but he's also full of hate. He's, he's like this socially completely backwards guy who's brilliant but knows his brilliance will never be recognized he'd be like like the nerdy kid who played dungeons and dragons who all the other kids hated because he knew all of the rules off by heart like he knew all of the books he knows everything and because he knows everything they kind of hate him because he always has a way you know uh he even reveals later in the movie like by her helping him get this ritual done, he was going to be able to ask his own, make his own request of the other side. And he wants to be invisible to the world. He wants 
He's already done everything he can to shut himself off from the world, but he wants the spiritual side to seal the deal for him. He wants, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with the rest of it. And that's part of why he's such an unbelievable prick to her. I think the other thing is that he's fairly good at reading people like most psychics are, and he knows that she's lying to him. She knows repeatedly that she's looking him in the eye and saying, I want to talk to my son, but really what she wants is vengeance to, upon the kids who did this to her son, right? Um, so that starts to get uh, him more and more furious. And when she gets frustrated at the results not happening as quickly as possible, she starts defying him. And that starts, you know, making becoming a threat. Like, this might seem like silly to you, but this is very, very serious. And a part of what makes the movie so believable is how small the magic is. There's a, a line of salt that he draws around the house, and he tells her, do not cross that line, and he is very unequivocal about it, enough that you believe it. He draws symbols on the floor and, and little shapes for them to sit in, and they light candles, and that's the bulk of what they do for their conjuring. But because it's so small and so handmade and so time-consuming and exhausting, I kind of believe it more than some lady wearing a turban saying, you know, talking in tongues. It, it made black magic more credible than I have ever seen it on film. Absolutely. The, the psychic man who is absolutely a dick. Yep. Um, <laughs> there is a part early on where he says, hey, if you're in for this, you got to be in for this. We're going to do, you know, these kind of rituals, like sex rituals, whatever. There's going to be blood involved. It'll hurt. It'll suck. You'll be sleep deprived. It's going to be rough. And she agrees. Um, and there is a part in the movie where he's like, okay, I guess it's time for the sex ritual. And she is annoyed, but she goes along with it. And it turns into him making her uh, strip her clothes off, and he just masturbates. He and, sexually uh, humiliates she, her. Pardon? He sexually humiliates her, and then reveals that it wasn't about the ritual. There, yeah, he says there's no such thing as sex magic. And it's a really interesting point in the movie, because it shows that he is able to manipulate her and use her. Because uh, like, he, he lied to her. Uh, and like you said, he sexually humiliated her. He got what he wanted, and she has nothing but to either completely trust or completely defy him. But it's also a significant moment because it shows that he believes what he's pitching to some extent because he explains, like, I can't actually have sex with you. You need to be pure for this to work, and that would defile you. If he was just in it for the exploitation, he would have just fucked her. Yeah, he um, could have. She was made it clear that she would literally do anything he said. And we've seen in the past that he was able to manipulate that. Like, I'm sure, yeah, there were specific rules. She had to be on this fast. She wasn't allowed to have sex or even please herself sexually. But these were all rules for the ritual. Other things that he was making her do, as far as cooking and cleaning for him, he was just doing because he's an asshole, right? <laughs> yes. Um, but that moment is really a pivotal moment in the thing because it's basically him saying to her, like, you agree to do anything that I will say, and you, you're backing that up. 
So that, 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 that's a lot of trust. And if you're going to lie to me, I can abuse that trust too. It's a two-way street. Now, I'm not defending the way he goes about it. It's absolutely abhorrent what he did. But the point that was being made, however awfully, is that we have a set of rules that we need to play by. And if you're not playing by the rules, neither will I. And uh, that fucking sucks, doesn't it? And it, I think it works. It absolutely works. But I don't know. I mean, a tough scene to handle, like uh, from both actors, that would have been a real, <laughs> like, tough scene. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I another big compliment I'll give this movie is that I think it sets up effectively and delivers effectively the end moment. Um, I don't know. Like, I, it's not a uh, sure yeah we talk about spoilers on for sure interview. Um, there is a moment very early on and it's one of the times where the psychic kind of sees into and perceives the ulterior motives of the lady um, she uh, is supposed to forgive someone as part of the ritual and she is like absolutely not I cannot forgive these people that have hurt me um, and he said the workaround is that she has to literally drink the blood of the psychic uh, mixed in with a little bit of wine, which is disgusting. Yep. But she does it. She would rather do it than forgive these people. And by the end of the movie, she kind of realizes as these uh, rituals have taken full effect and are actually now working as advertised, she realizes that she doesn't want revenge on these people. She wants to not be sad about her kid dying. And so she's able to make a wish to the um, ethereal plane, I guess. And her wish ends up being, I want the power to forgive these people that have hurt me. And I think that was an amazing ending. I think Powerful. that was Powerful. just really strong writing. Because you don't know where this movie is going at any point. And I say that in such a good complimentary type of way. But... What she needs isn't vengeance. She needs to find herself again. She's so consumed by hate and grief that she has lost almost everything else to the left and right of it. So when she finally goes through, literally she fights her way out of hell, she sees these damned souls. She sees the bitterness manifested in these creatures. And she doesn't want to be that. And this absolutely stunning visual of this guardian angel, whatever it is, he just fills the entire room. He's like five times her size and he's kneeling and he's got this huge, crazy looking sword. And he looks like he fucking means business. In a way, the angel is as terrifying as the, the, the hell creatures. He's just more, more I guess beautiful than they are but the power that is in that image is is completely striking and instead of asking for her vengeance as you said she asks to learn how to forgive because she's been broken she's was basically becoming who joe the character the psychic man's name was joseph she that was basically the path she was on she was becoming him you know and uh he ended up giving his life to give her this opportunity to ask for this and she chooses to not go with vengeance and it's a hopeful it's a hopeful tone to end this absolutely horrifying movie i also have to say that last 15 minutes when she's alone in the house <laughs> yeah. 
it's terrifying. It's really, <laughs> really terrifying. Like, when she's alone and she doesn't have anybody to explain to her what to do or not do anymore. Like, it's it's seriously bad news. And, uh, like, it's been a while since a, a movie, it paid off both emotionally while working the thrill angle of a horror movie. I find a lot of the times they do either one or the other. This movie did both. Is there anything else you wanted to say about a dark song? Um, I do want to compliment that it does a good job of having sudden scares, but never having any actual jump scares. Nothing lazy about the scares. I guess there's a little bit, just people appearing in the shadows in the last bit kind of startled me, but the scares are sort of... But, yeah, I'm... It's psychologically poisonous. The atmosphere is really ugly, and that's kind of what gets to you in a way. I also yeah. wanted to say the uh, actor, is it Steve Oram, I believe is the name of the guy playing Joseph. Pretty strong actor. He was in another... Uh, British Joss Whedon. Yeah. There's a, he's in another movie called Sightseers as sort of a random spree killer. <laughs> uh, but in a way, he's still a more, like, a safer character in that movie than he's playing in this one. Um I think a dark song is super strong, and I cannot recommend it enough if you haven't seen it. This real. You saw him. Let's welcome Cody. Why do you have these pills, Cody? I don't like to sleep. My dreams. What happens when you dream? Something's not right. I have to find out more about Cody's dreams. You've heard this before. Your son doesn't want to sleep. That little boy's dreams come true. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. What are his nightmares? So, Mike Flanagan has been doing great things in horror for quite a while. If you've seen Absentia, or Oculus, or Gerald's Game, or this um, miniseries they did on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House, it's not so much an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's Hill House as it is sort of a weird, creepy as shit prequel to it. The man's been doing a lot of good work. Uh, this movie actually was made earlier in his career, but didn't get released until later. I, I think it was such an odd duck, they didn't quite know what to do with it. So it was sort of in limbo for a few years. The premise is that uh, a couple who have tragically lost their son uh, adopt another one. And he's been sort of tossed around from foster home to foster home for quite a while. And it seems that he's been having a hard time settling in. And uh, no one seems to understand why. But this young couple, uh, played by Kate Bosworth and Thomas Jane, find out that when the boy dreams, his dreams manifest in reality. First innocuously enough in the appearances of butterflies, then tragically appearing as the vision of their own son, and then increasingly terrifyingly as this frightening image that he calls the canker man. So what are they going to do about this little kid whose dreams they can exploit to visit their long-lost son, but whose nightmares may well be de deadly? 
that's the premise of Before I Wait. I think it's a pretty Before I Wake. I think it's a pretty strong premise, but does the movie back it up? I very first note in this is that I bet this kid makes monsters. Maybe this is the better version of Altitude. <laughs> it is a better version um, of Altitude. I will give you that for sure. <laughs> It, uh, it's really interesting. So it stars uh, Jacob uh, Trim- Trombley. Um, Trombley, yes. Uh, who got his debut in uh, 2015's Room. Not, not to be confused with The Room. Right. Room no. with Alison Brie. Um, and I think he does a very good job in this movie. I really hope he doesn't get typecast as little kids who are endearing. Because... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so far, it's not super distinguishable, this character from his character in uh, in Room. But I was kind of... Uh, the, the charm worked on me, and I was rooting for him to have a good ending for himself, regardless of what happened to everyone else. Um, I did... <sighs> the movie, I think, doesn't do any... It doesn't take any steps to hide its premise. It never once tries to surprise you with what's going on. It's from the very first time that their sun and butterflies are conjured. The This kid, uh, Cody, was yeah. his name? I believe so. Yeah, Cody, like, they see their son, they hug him, the sun disappears, Cody walks up, and he's like, I'm sorry. Then he goes to bed and drinks uh, an energy drink to try and stay awake. He knows what's happening, and he understands the consequences of it the parents figure it out right away there is a large part of this movie where they're just kind of super chill and cool about it like like, <laughs> like it's like shit he literally conjures shit in his sleep i don't know do you want to go buy him a new bed tomorrow how are we gonna deal with this well they're cooler <laughs> about it than the other families because a i think the canker man didn't show up right away and b the mother kate bosworth uh really sees it as a way to visit her son who she's lost and she comes to realize she's actually exploiting this kid after a while like she still cares for the kid and wants to look after him but she's using this ability to sort of deal with her own shit and that's not what you're supposed to do as a parent or a foster parent unfortunately it costs her husband's life before she comes to that conclusion I think another thing that uh, the movie accomplishes really well is making me like this couple early on. One of the first times we see Thomas Jane, he's installing handrails inside the bathtub. And we don't understand the context yet, but their son drowned in that bath. Um, It's apparently a fairly common thing for young kids, especially if they have epilepsy or something like that. They submerge themselves in water, and it induces a seizure, and they gasp for air and drown. And that looks very much to be the story that happened here. And uh, I know families who have lost people to that type of tragedy, and it's fucking awful. And I, my heart just went out to them absolutely right away. So you wanted them to, you know, <laughs> get their family back. And that's not what the movie's about. In a sort of sixth sense way, it's about this boy coming to terms with his power and where that power comes from. And the people to the left and right are kind of the casualties of that lack of understanding. 
it's a tough movie. It's tougher than it looks. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 I like it, but it's so sad as to almost be more unpleasant than frightening. It, it resolves decently well enough. Um, but there's even, like, even though I would say it has a generally happy ending, there is a little bit of um, melancholy towards the end as the mother does rescue and takes this child in helping him overcome his inner fears and triumphing over the the canker man, as he is called. Um, but even then, there's kind of this moment where she realizes that these people that are lost are probably lost forever, and all we can do is kind of make up happy endings for them in our minds and hope that that's good enough. Or hope because that this her husband kid's... is never going to walk back into the door. Yeah, she's telling him that story and telling herself that story of what she wants to believe. And maybe, who knows, his powerful's big enough to make that be true. But um, we don't know. The movie doesn't leave us with that. As far as we know, all of the people who disappeared or disappeared. That guy's wife who vanished from him is still vanished and, and you know... <laughs> loss is lost but if it's easier for her to tell herself that her husband is now in this netherworld looking after their actual son well that's the tale that she's going to tell herself um again a way we kind of knock on the door of what dreams may come without literally showing us that world um is the afterlife anything at all or is the afterlife the story that we tell ourselves the fact that this little boy has such powerful magic sort of suggests a bigger world may in fact exist so i guess i would say it's not a hopeless movie but the the canker man is unsubtly his sort of visual representation of the cancer that killed his mother the last time he saw his mother she was so physically drained by the illness that she literally was unrecognizable to him and this somehow blurred in his subconscious into this creature this canker man and all it represents is this thing that takes from him things that he loves so the people that he's closest to are what are most victimized by it it's very very tragic and uh, as much as they've solved the problem and that they know what, what he does and the, how this manifests and that he's going to have to conquer these fears, a child of that age is going to have many fears and consequently many nightmares. And that is not resolved at the end of the movie. No, it's not. Um, but honestly, I think those questions are maybe bigger than any one movie should try and tackle. But yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I don't have a lot to say about it I like I said it was a little bit infuriating watching them just go about their daily lives as this entirely entirely cockamamie thing was happening right in front of them but it's I don't know that I'd call that a negative like I wouldn't dock a lot of points for it it's just a thing that I observed overall I enjoyed this movie and I think that it was well done I think it's a riff on the sixth sense in some ways um, in the same way at the end of The Sixth Sense, Cole is not cured. He just understands that seeing ghosts is sort of a double-edged sword. Some of them are angry and might be frightening, but most of them are just benign and they, they, need, they need to have a conversation. And somehow knowing how to deal with it is enough of a win for them to roll credits, even though the story isn't over. Uh, that's sort of how I feel. <laughs> That's how I feel at the end of Before I yeah. Wake. Like, the story isn't over. It's just they have a means of dealing with the terror now. <laughs> the, 
also in this movie, it shows that like his powers are growing on top of that. At the, as of the beginning of the movie, these things only manifest literally in dreams. And towards the middle and definitely at the end, it shows that he can start doing it by force of will through imagination. Too. Yeah. Um, who knows where he'll be at when he's a teenager or an adult. Maybe he'll just be Thanos by that point. He yeah. can just will whatever he wants into existence or out. There's also that old, it might actually be a Richard Matheson story now that I think of it. They did it in the Twilight Zone, the movie, <laughs> about that little kid who, whatever he wishes, he can make manifest into reality and who has become this perfect, perfect evil tyrant, <laughs> lording and kidnapping people to do his bidding. Um, if this kid twisted wrong, that could very easily be his fate as well. I mean, I think you can tell by listening to our conversation that there's a lot of interesting, deep themes to the movie. I think that the acting is strong. I think that Mike Flanagan knows how to, you know, make a, a, a creepy sequence work. I think it's it, it's good enough. I think it might be guilty of asking more questions than it answers, but um, that I think they kind of get away with it this time. It's not obtuse. It's not like David Lynch, where they don't even try to answer it. It's like they tantalize you with what might be instead of just, you know, letting you choose your own adventure okay i think we're recording the frankenstein monster is real and i think i can find him so carl what do you think of jonathan's theory you believe him like a lot of big game in my day wouldn't mind bagging myself for frankenstein <laughs> carl scares me oh and that's a gun no he really scares me Welcome to Potter's Gulch. Population us. This place gives me the creeps. Well, what? I thought I saw something. He is out there, you know. What's that? I don't like this place, man. There's something out there. It's him. I can feel his presence. <laughs> oh my god. There's blood. What? Over here. Oh my God. Luke! Guys, Luke! No, 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 no. We have got to go. I'm not going anywhere. On the verge of a great scientific discovery. I'm not going anywhere. So there's no way you could know this, but um, actually the episodes directly preceding this one, uh, Rankin Review did an experiment. I've been having trouble filling my roster of guests, so I did a one-on-one -on -one Larry Defends Found Footage. I understand that a lot of people hate down found footage and would not w go anywhere near it. I'm curious as to whether or not like this movie would have ever considered you know, registering on your radar, if not for me forcing it down your throat. But the Frankenstein theory is indeed a found footage movie about a bunch of Americans who come to the wilds of Canada to literally hunt Frankenstein's <laughs> monster. The outrageous premise is that this uh, the student, um, played by Chris Lemke, people who are fans of uh, Ginger Snaps might recognize him, uh, his grandfather gave him these letters which mirror almost identically the letters that Mary Shelley uh, created for her novel of Frankenstein. And from a young age, he believed it to be true. And so committed is he to this theory that he's about to be kicked out of the school he's in and he feels like the only way people will ever take him and his ridiculous theory seriously is if he manages to get footage of this creature 
So he takes what money he has left and he rounds up a bunch of filmmakers and, like I say, they travel to the wilds of Canada. And this is a concept that I find highly amusing. This uh, remote northern area of Canada full of this sort of unique breed of, of redneck. Uh, I, I find kind of amusing. Um, so they, they keep on going farther and farther out and they keep on bumping into weird, crazy people. And the darker and more isolated things tend to get, all of a sudden, the more believable this theory starts to be. And then one night, they start hear hearing howls in the distance, howls that do not sound like wolves. Such is the bizarre premise of the Frankenstein theory, and I am fascinated to hear what you have to say. I thought this movie was drab. I have absolutely nothing against found footage movies. To each format, their own. Um, I just... It starts off with a lot of bad science. And, like, uh, this is not a sci-fi movie. It doesn't need to be good. But, I mean, the scientific process I found objectionable. This guy is just absolutely dead set on this theory that Frankenstein is real. Um, and he goes about proving it in all the wrong ways. Uh, like there are there are procedures where if you're like, hey, I have an actual legitimate theory that think Frankenstein might have actually existed, there are procedures for which you would go to prove them, and the scientist guy follows none of them. <laughs> um, then, of course, because the premise is that the film crew is following along, we get a lot of commentary from people whose jobs it is to not have any commentary, to not be seen or heard. The sound guy, I think, produces more sound than he captures. Um, <laughs> it's... It, I, I just felt myself unmoved by this movie at any given point. The scientist man assumes a lot about uh, the Frankenstein. There is one part of the movie where he actually sits down and he says, look... There have been an increase in disappearances this way, this way, this way. That track also tracks with the migratory patterns of caribou. So it makes sense to me that the, this thing is following the caribou and occasionally getting distracted by towns. And I was like, God damn, finally something reasonable out of his mouth. I think maybe the movie would have been stronger if they weren't going in expecting to find a Frankenstein. And instead, it was more of a procedural piecing together the conclusion that Frankenstein's monster was real and they accidentally discovered it. But for most of the movie, their guide proposes that it's a bear. And the only reason why it wouldn't be a bear is because this isn't a bear's episode of Rank and Review. It's a horror <laughs> episode of Rank and Review. And this is a horror movie, so of course it's going to be a Frankenstein. And there's no no reward to the discovery I don't think. I wasn't particularly scared I wasn't particularly endeared I wasn't particularly enthralled I wasn't upset, I wasn't offended at this movie the way I was at Altitude I just felt nothing the whole way through. Well to quote the recently reviewed Office Space on Rank and Review I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree a little bit with you there uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
here's the thing. I understand that the movie's not smart, and I understand that it has a lot of the conventions of the found footage movies that, that a lot of people get frustrated about. I don't think this is the found footage movie that's going to change anybody's mind. But what I find so intensely amusing about the Frankenstein theory is that it's it's like the Blair Witch Project with a severe head injury. Okay? That's not... <laughs> <laughs> that is not kind, but like this is sort of how I feel. Like the movie's not smart, but there's shit in it that I think really works. When they go to interview that meth head early in the movie, and he fucking completely falls apart in front of them, and it goes from being sort of funny to being really, really real <laughs> for a second. I, I I think that really works. When the guide that they hire is condescending and dismissive of their Frankenstein theory because everything that he's attributing to a Frankenstein he could contribute uh, attribute to a bear and he tells a pretty convincing horrifying bear story to back up him you know there's no reason for us to believe Chris Lemke's character except for the fact that we know that this is a movie and that there's no fucking way they're not gonna find Frankenstein <laughs> And it's to the movie's credit that when they first start hearing the howls at night, it works for me. It sort of reminds me of that scene in Willow Creek where the couple just wake up in the middle of the night and just spend ten minutes listening to the noises outside of the tent in naked terror. These idiots have brought themselves way out of their comfort zone, way out into the middle of nowhere, to find a monster with absolutely no plan as to what they would do if and when they found said monster. And surprise, surprise, things go catastrophically wrong for them. And I don't know, I mean... I set the bar low because it was a ridiculous premise and it was an, a micro-budget horror movie. And I gotta say, I think it accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish, and it works way more than I expected it to. Is it a guilty pleasure? Yes, absolutely, it's a guilty pleasure. But in the same way I can like enjoy a movie like Frankenfish, or like, you know, something really deliberately cheesy like a Stuart Gordon movie or Dolls or something like that, I see no reason why I can't get behind Frankenstein's theory. Because for me, when it works, it works. Sure. I uh, I want to be clear once again. I, it's the thing about it being found footage that I found particularly off-putting. It could be... Like, I think there is a found footage, micro-budget version of this movie that is considerably better in my mind like I said the big thing for me would be that I think there is a good version of this movie that is both found footage and micro budget like I was saying the big quick fix for me would be having it be that they did not intend to find Frankenstein's monster right from the get go because that way you could have then some amount of uh, procedural storytelling as they slowly creep across this you know insane outcome and then you can still have all of the horror and all of the craziness that ensues and all of the ridiculousness um without kind of having me sit there for the whole movie saying gosh i can't wait till frankenstein shows up <laughs> and that's it there is no doubt that Frankenstein will show up. <laughs> like, the movie, uh, I mean, I would be really mad at the movie if it was a bear, if it was a big old switcheroonie or something like this. Yeah. I, uh, but, I, I mean, 
yes, the, the cameraman and the sound guy bitch way too much. And it seems like the farther they go out to danger, the more they bitch. The more they put themselves in danger, the more they're like starting to realize, hey, are we in a bad movie right now? Are we about to be killed by Frankenstein's monster? And how yes. it's weirdly perfect that their guide, the hunter, the one guy who knows how to survive and handle this wilderness is, of course, the first person that they lose, right? Like, they are unmatched by their environment. And I would like to also go back to, I th- like, if you want to set movies in the far north of, of Canada and sort of paint this portrait of, like, these crazy eccentric people who live here, <laughs> I don't think it's a real portrait of Canada. It's like an interesting window into what Americans think Canadians are. But I do think it's really amusing. <laughs> it, it, it's, I, I have There's to... Like, yeah. They go to interview the one guy and his neighbor and him just get into a staring match. And then one of them's like, oh, fuck you, Clarence. And he's like, fuck you, Doug. And then they just walk into the house like nothing happened. <laughs> yes. And, you know, just the uh, these northern folk, they, they look at us the way we would look at some southern hill people. <laughs> right? And I don't know. Yes. I, I kind of found that to be charming in a weird way. That that's what they think Canada is. This is all driving distance from where we live, or where I live anyway. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, close, it's more driving distance from where I live. I'm, I'm close to the northwest. There you go. Um, I think that yeah, I guess I go back to where I started. I don't think it's going to win anybody over, but it, it, if you're amused by this idea that some guy would hire a film crew to literally go find Frankenstein's monster, I don't know. I, it could have just caught me on the right day, Eric, but I got a soft spot for this movie. Um, and I have to say, there are a few moments that genuinely work. When they've come back to their little shelter uh, after looking for one of their missing companions, and they just see it for the first time standing outside of the shack and it, it's like twice the, the 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 height of the shed that they're standing in like the size of the creature is first made like a it's pretty shocking and they're outside in the freezing cold and they're like okay where's frankenstein like he, there's no plan as to what to do like, i don't know it's I think everything about the design and the reveal of Frankenstein was very well handled. Well, that's good. There's something good to be said for you there. I, again, I hate <laughs> making people watch stuff that they don't like. Um, and <laughs> I, I found myself becoming a bit of a softie. Like, I am, I like even when we were reviewing Altitude, I started with all of the things that I liked. I will say, in the end, with Frankenstein Theory, there was more stuff in it that I liked that I didn't. Um, it is a guilty pleasure. It is a B-level monster movie, and it is a found footage movie that has all of the constraints that you'd expect. So if this doesn't sound like something you'll enjoy, it probably isn't. But if you're like me and you have an open mind to most things horror, I would honestly say give it a shake. It's clearly, it's an underwatched movie, and I don't know, it's so weird. <laughs> like, it's such an odd yeah. movie. i kind of just happy that it exists before its oddness, in a way. So, I mean, it's not an enthusiastic, please, please, please watch the Frankenstein theory for me. It's a kind of like, oh, come on, you guys. They did the best they could. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's funny where like I'll be super picky, you know. I, I did a, a Scorsese episode recently, and I'm starting talking shit about why didn't Scorsese make this movie better, right? Whereas I'll go all the way, we'll give all the rope that they need for Frankenstein Theory to work for me. So. Maybe maybe this review is biased. Take it with a grain of salt. But I say give Frankenstein Theory a shot. It ain't so bad. <laughs> Fair enough. You ready to rank, brother? Let's do it! Thank you so much, Eric, for joining me for another episode of Rank and Review. Technical issues notwithstanding, I think it's an interesting bunch of movies. And uh, even for the ones that you regret watching, <laughs> I like that you at least made a discovery with this podcast. I may have subjected you to the Frankenstein theory, but you also discovered a dark song. So, you know, there's a give and take to this. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the interest rate on the give and take in this episode was maybe a little bit high, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm curious to hear what's your least favorite of these six horror fantasies and why. Oh, you'll not be surprised. It's Altitude. I fucking hated every moment of that movie. Okay. I just... I resented being trapped with those characters during the duration of the film. It just... I, I don't recommend it to anybody. I didn't find it enjoyable at all i found it an actively unpleasant experience to watch i didn't like altitude whatsoever in fifth place uh a much less harsh but uh equally unenthusiastic i guess i would say is the frankenstein theory um i i think you nailed it if you're gonna enjoy this movie you already know you already know if you like this type of film (laughs) i think there is something to be said of bundling up on a cold night when it's dark with some popcorn and it's just you in this movie i think there's there's something to be gotten out of that experience but as a piece of film i wasn't super into the story that it was telling or more specifically i was not into the way that they were telling that story and i found it to be very passable um in number four is the dark tower which was the first movie that i watched and I honestly came away from it thinking that it was going to be number six. Oops. So that tells you what I think about this movie. It's just, I, I, this is my list. You already know if Dark Tower or uh, Frank, uh, the Frankenstein Theory will appeal to you more. Um, the Dark Tower is such an empty film. There's such a lack of character to it. And it skips over all the parts that even dare to be endearing and interesting. It's a very unfortunate film. I would then place uh, What Dreams May Come, actually. Um, it 
I've already said what I'll say about it. I think it has high highs in terms of its artistic direction and everything visual with the film. And I'm very on board with the premise. I do think, again, as a piece of media trying to tell a narrative, it loses its way with that uh, a lot of times. Um, it's interesting because you, Larry, brought up Game of Thrones in relation to the Dark Tower. Um George R. R. Martin has developed something that I think should be just a given literary tool, which is, it's the concept of the three-step reveal. A character will maybe have an offhanded comment of, oh, I don't have luck with people with blue shirts. And then maybe even two books later, they'll be in a room with someone who happens to have a blue shirt and they'll feel uneasy about it. And then some big twist will happen where the blue shirt person betrays them or what have you. (laughs) And it, feels earned because you've gone through this whole process of being slightly foreshadowed uh, and then slightly nodded to and then fully revealed with uh, whatever the twist or the revelation is. And I think that there is an utterly fantastic What Dreams May Come that could be built around that same premise. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't the one that was made. And so I think it's an interesting movie. I would recommend people watch it i think it's fine but as far as this place on this list and in my heart i'm lukewarm on it right um then number two is uh before i wake which again i found to be a little peculiar in how these uh characters handled the situation but it was a very engaging premise uh it's just it's just fun to think about superpowers or abilities or whatnot i think it's just interesting if you like how many of us didn't try and make a remote fly into our hand using the forest as kids (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and this is one of those kinds of movies of you're like ah that's that's neat and you want to you want to delve into that concept and you want to see as much of it as you can and i think this movie is satisfying in that way and it does have a good uh, beginning, middle, end, and it does have a satisfactory conclusion. And as you said, it asks more questions than it answers, but it answers enough that the movie is perfectly fine and I would recommend people see it. And then the movie that I'm happy I watched, <laughs> actively happy, what a treasure, A Dark Song is such a good film. And it's interesting because I feel like it's the kind of movie that many people wouldn't like. I think there's a lot of people that would come out of the theater for something like that and feel like they had been ripped off or sold a bill of goods that didn't uh, come through. But I think I would strongly make the argument that, again, seeing this as a movie that is telling a story that has a concept that is going to follow through on that concept, I think this movie does it absolutely commendably i think every scene there is new information given every scene we're experiencing the journey that the character goes on and by the time you get to the end i'm as happy that she can find peace as she is that she has found it and i think that it is um i would recommend this i I don't think everyone would enjoy this movie, but I would recommend to, uh, I recommend people see it because it is, I say, comfortably the best movie on this list. It is easily the most challenging movie of this list. It doesn't do all of the work for you, but I, I you're not going to hear me fighting you. Uh, you are incredibly prescient in your predictions of this list because we only agree in one place, and I think <laughs> you know what that place is. 
Uh, in sixth place, and this is highly personal, but this movie spat in my face. It's The Dark Tower. As far as accomplishing or even scratching the surface, like, I don't think if I'd watched that movie not reading any Dark Tower that I would want to read The Dark Tower. Like, I, I feel like it just seems like uh, a passing glance, a mishmash, a missed opportunity. And there was all sorts of talk about this movie. Ron Howard had this idea that he was going to direct the uh, a movie, then do a season of television on HBO, and then direct another movie to tell this story, right? But instead, somebody said, no, let's just do it in one, and let's do it as quickly and as lazily as possible. So in spite of it having a great cast and some really impressive sequences of action, uh, I cannot abide The Dark Tower, and I cannot rank it anywhere but last place on this list for me. I, I'm heartbroken over that movie. Like, it set back a good adaptation of The Dark Tower by at least 10 years, I would say. Uh, who knows, maybe HBO will get around to it, because I think maybe that's what it needs, is a, is a budget and a series order. But Altitude, I put in fifth place. I mean, uh, again, I like the concept. I like the cast. I just wish that the script had taken us home. I just think that it was still born in that way. If the script isn't there, you're not ready to shoot. So um, another another couple of drafts and it might have got there. It's, like I said, haunted by a better movie that could be there. I like the concepts. I just don't like the picture as it's turned out. In fourth place, perhaps generously, I am putting the Frankenstein Theory, which I uncharitably <laughs> called a Blair Witch with a head injury, which is, which is not a nice thing to say, but it, I, that's how I feel. It's how I feel, Eric. <laughs> um, you should have been really generous and put this one in first. <laughs> you think so? That would have been too far. Fourth is not bad. Fourth is not bad. Um, Before I Wake is a really technically well-made movie. And uh, I kind of got to it. The first time I saw it, I thought maybe the imagery was a little bit simplistic or the metaphor of the canker man to cancer. Upon watching it again, I realized, well, it's a little kid. It probably would be kind of on the nose, right? Uh, maybe it's not on the nose if you're six and you're dealing with your dead mother, right? Um, so... Uh, it almost feels more like a Twilight episode or something like that. I mean, the, the fantasy is kind of interesting. Um, I don't know that it's resolved nicely in a bow, but I don't know that it could be. There, it, It's imperfect, but it's so interesting that I, I encourage people to check it out. All the way in second place, and by the way, I'm as surprised as anybody right now. <laughs> I'm putting what dreams may come. Because this is the opposite of what I usually get behind. The The level of sentimentality in this movie is, is almost toxic. I think, you know, Max von Sydow and Cuba Gooding Jr. and Annabelle Sciorra, the cast really helps to sell it. And it sort of softened my perspective on, on, on this idea of the afterlife. Like... I understand why people are seduced by it, you know? It's hard to just sort of think, you're dead and that's it, the end, curtain closes, darkness, nothing. Uh, who wants to believe that? Why isn't it more seductive to believe that everyone you lost will be returned to you? Everything you've lost, you can have back. And um, instead of repelling it, I, 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 didn't, I didn't fight the movie. And I think if you if you go into what dreams may come fighting it, you'll win, right? <laughs> yes. 
Uh, but I, I, I think it's visually amazing and some of the emotional stuff did actually land for me. Yes, it's overly sentimental and, and that is a flaw, but it's not a flaw big enough for me to dismiss the movie, which once upon a time I kind of did. So revisit stuff, you guys. Every now and then you are surprised what dreams may come inexplicably in second place. And a dark song, head and shoulders above the rest, right? It was like a dark song and then five other movies, right? Um, I, I almost made the joke that every other movie was in sixth place and <laughs> first place was a dark song. It's by such a significant large margin. Uh, and it's, again, another one of these small thrillers that slipped under the radar. And if you missed it, please, 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 please seek it out because... Again, it's very rare that you get a horror movie that works both in the scares and with an emotional payoff. Usually it's one or the other, or neither. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of respect for a dark song. And uh, this director, Liam Gavin, whatever he does yet next, no matter what the subject, I'm going to give it a day in court. I'm Absolutely. sorry, dude, you didn't match. <laughs> not this time, you're I not getting knew, it I back. knew, I knew it, I knew it. Knew it. Oh. <laughs> Lee lives to fight another day. <laughs> he and I are going Yo, to. We'll just have to agree on anime. Yeah, he and I are going to be doing an episode on black exploitation, believe it or not. So he's going to have oh. another at bat. <laughs> are you guys going to do uh, Black Dynamite? Uh, no, uh, we're going to do the Shaft trilogy. Nice. Um, and Cleopatra Jones, and there's a couple. There's a little bit, a little bit up in the air about what I can get access to before I see him. But um, I don't think he'll be disappointed, though. <laughs> but uh, Lee is like motivated to double down on his his championship. He doesn't like it being threatened like it has been. <laughs> so, yeah, well, whatever that cheater. I had something good, and he took it away from me. <laughs> you had the the Rocky Balboa champion, and he, and he just stole it. It right was from... so it was so appropriate because of the, the themes of the Rocky. <laughs> that was a fun episode and uh, you'll be hearing Eric Jurgens again uh, we're going to talk about anime which is a real blind spot that's why I'm doing exploitation again it's an, uh, a whole terrible blind spot in my in my music in my music in my movie watching like uh, I've, I've underrepresented that area and same thing with anime people keep telling me that anime is amazing and uh, I have found that unless it's directed by Miyazaki I have not liked it, so Eric is going to help me out, and uh, together we're going to explore that. You have that to look forward to. Is there anything you want to say to the kids on the internet before we uh, put a bow on this episode, brother? Yes, mark your calendars, because at the end of this year, myself and Gray Murfield are going to put together another year-in-review um, <laughs> mega video we got a little off track ever since I moved to BC, but now he's moving to BC, and we've already started putting together our list. So, uh, what is it now? Do you have a rough idea of when this will come out? This should be the first episode of April, I think. Of April, okay. So, like, I don't know, nine months from when you hear this, <laughs> our year-end video will be out. Well, we'll keep them, we'll keep them in the know. Thank you so much. And do send some love to Ashley for me, all right? Absolutely, I will. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Take care, brother. I appreciate it.
And so it was that another episode of Rankin Review comes to an end. What do you think? Did we rank it correctly? You can send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I welcome any feedback, both positive and negative feedback. I don't mind. I can take it. I'm a grown-up real boy. Um, I hope you keep on listening to Rankin Review, and I hope you tell your friends about Rankin Review. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider trying out the Terror Tape podcast. They're friends of my show, and I am friends of theirs, and uh, it's a high-quality product. So if you like Rankin Review, I think you will like the Terror Tape. Please consider giving them a chance wherever good podcasts are found. This is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, saying thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you continue listening to my podcast. And I drop every other Wednesday.